0: Before we begin, just giving you an update on our new subscription. It's called David McWilliams Plus on Apple. You just double click, you get no ads and you get me and John, pure and simple. And Mac, you get early access episodes. Did you know that? Sure. My day is made.
1: Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.
0: To understand the economy, you have to understand human nature.
1: This podcast is powered by Acast.
0: How are you doing there? It is podcast time. We are going to talk property, but not property has probably been on your mind if you're listening in Ireland, which has been the nexus between politicians and grubby backhanders and having their own little private uh, portfolio while they are making decisions about the property market. Not that. We're going to go to a much, much bigger and potentially profoundly much more destabilizing property bubble, which is the one that has just burst in China. I don't think it's getting enough attention internationally. I think we forget that China is the second largest economy in the world. Property is sucking in a huge amount of Chinese resources. They are just, again, for Irish audiences, we've seen this movie. We know how it ends. We know what happens <laughs> when the banks, the politicians, the developers are all involved, scaring the bejays out of the punters. We know what happens when a property market implodes. It doesn't end well. It's not pretty. You get a balance sheet recession. It can actually drag the economy for many, many years, right? And
1: it's the fellows at
0: the bottom that suffer most. Well, it's always, it's, it's a pyramid scheme. So we're going to talk yeah. about China in two seconds, John, because what is going on in China is phenomenal. What else is annoying you this week? Well, no, just on, to stay on the on
1: the China property thing. W- what I saw recently was it on Twitter or YouTube—I can't remember which—but there was lots of videos of China blowing up these massive apartment blocks and blowing up ten at a time. So, in other words, just wiping out half a city in yep. one fell swoop.
0: Well, <laughs> you know what that shows you, John. Right is that. John Stuart Mill, the English philosopher and economist from the Victorian age, said something very interesting about booms. He said, the bust, this was after the railway collapse in 1850s, is not what destroys your wealth. The bust merely evidences the stupidity of decisions taken in the boom. And that's exactly what you're seeing with those estates being blown up, those apartment blocks, right? It just reveals the profound waste of money. Now, if it is more financially viable to blow up those developments than continue to finish them, it shows you the whole and the waste of money that's been going on in China. So let's, folks in the Chinese property market, let us go over to one of the best analysts of China. He's one of the economists, number of analysts working in China, his name's Mike Bird. He's all over the story. Let's go to China. There are bubbles everywhere. There are bubbles in markets. There are bubbles in bond markets. There are bubbles in all sorts of assets. Wherever you look over the last 10, 15 years of easy money, right? But one that is particularly geostrategically important is the bubble and subsequent, what looks like, meltdown in the Chinese property market. I want to go now straight to China to talk to Mike Bird, who is the Economist's man or one of the Economist magazine's man in Asia and in China. Mike, how are you?
2: Hey, David. I'm very well. It's actually Singapore now. I've, I've moved from Hong Kong. Uh, yeah, it's just slightly earlier in the year.
0: Well, you know, speaking of Singapore, I won't won't digress, but I will slightly. I just watched the movie, John is giggling already. It's called Crazy Rich Asians. I watched it the other day on Netflix. Oh my God. If that's what Singapore is like. I want to go to the wedding. That's, it. that's why I might
2: move there. I'd say that's it. That's it. Nice, nice bit of trivia. Actually, is the the sort of properties they film Crazy Rich Asians in are so ludicrously expensive and actually quite rare in Singapore that they had to film almost all of that stuff in Malaysia, where it was uh, where it was easier to actually get inside the mansions.
0: That is hilarious. That is hilarious. I want to come back to Singapore, actually, because Singapore's got a very interesting property model for the average guy, but let's go straight to China. It really, really does. I mean, Singapore is one of those amazing stories that has managed to keep a lid on property prices for the average dude. Not at the very high end, but for the average dude, we may well come back to that because I think it offers a model, certainly for Ireland, certainly for the UK, you know, large European cities where things are going out of control. But let's go to China. Tell me what is happening on the ground in the Chinese property market.
2: So I think the, the bottom line, the easiest way to explain this is uh, Chinese residential investment, housing sales, house building, that part of the economy is absolutely enormous. It's an area of the economy that has been growing faster than China's relatively high GDP growth for almost all of the last 20 years. You've only seen very, very narrow periods where that hasn't been the case. And I'll come back to those periods in a little bit. The bottom line of what's happening now is housing sales are down 32% year on year. This is sort of completely uncharted territory for Chinese economy. This sort of thing simply does not happen. People are used to pretty rapid growth in housing sales, which means pretty rapid growth in credit to the household sector and housing prices as well. So it's pretty grim times at the moment. So let's, let's just, go right back, okay? When I say right back,
0: in the case of Chinese property, we're talking going back 20, 25 years, private property was more or less outlawed up until the 90s. What happened to the Chinese investor, the average Chinese person, the Chinese psyche that saw the Chinese putting so much into property once they were allowed to own property?
2: I think that's exactly it. So the Chinese property liberalization basically starts in a, in the a late 1980s. There's this very strange set of circumstances where you jump in the space of a few years from private property, as you say, being basically completely illegal to Chinese private property, not only being encouraged as an asset class for households to own, but also being at the sort of root of the way that Chinese local governments raise all of their money. So you had a series of fiscal reforms in the mid-1990s that massively encouraged Chinese local governments to sell land. And really, they're selling land use rights. Technically, the state still owns all of the land in China. But this has made it basically extremely lucrative and useful for local governments. And it's also given them this massive incentive, funnily enough, to let land prices rise as much as they possibly can. Because low land prices are of benefit to basically nobody in china as as part of this uh, this calculus. So 1994, you get this major fiscal change, the change in the tax system, a lot of stimulus. You had this major change. By the late 1990s, you have the development of the Chinese property industry. Really, as we know it now, the major developers are in full swing. Everything's getting going, massive residential investment. You basically have a problem in China if that's the push side of things. The incentive on the part of the local governments to sell as much land the pull side of things is a country with an incredibly high savings rate. It's got a ludicrously high savings rate and incredibly low consumption and very, very few other decent financial products to put money in. Basically, in China, for a very large portion of this time, you had three or four choices. You had fairly unreliable stock market. Chinese stocks for buy and hold investors have been pretty terrible, unreliable, volatile, a lot of dodgy companies, a lot of companies that are simply not very profitable. You have bank deposits where the returns are pretty low. You have had all sorts of strange trust products where there have been a number of blow-ups. They'll often offer huge guaranteed returns. They've been terrible. Or you've got housing. Housing has been the guaranteed, worthwhile, reliable, high-return investment. Chinese households know that very well. They're very well aware, in fact, of the sort of political constraints around housing and that really housing prices can't be allowed to drop that much. So you've had these two push and pull factors that have made this into such a, a sort of ridiculously frenetic housing market.
0: It's it's really interesting, Mike. As, as, I, as I listen to you, you're talking the language that I heard in Ireland in 2005. Number one was we have a young population. We have a very, very outdated housing stock. The state is getting VAT from the sale of every single house. So precisely as you say, local government, ours was central government had a huge incentive to keep this going because it was a tax generating gig. You have a whole entire echelon of quasi-professional and professional pushers of the product because everyone's making a few quid. And suddenly you get this inferno of speculation, investment, et cetera, whatever you want to call it. Now in China, let's go fast forward. You have mortgage boycotts, mortgage strikes. What is happening? So I want to go from there to what we are now, then we analyze it, then we look forward.
2: Absolutely. So uh, the mortgage boycotts now are essentially, uh, well, as it says on the tin, it's people refusing to pay their mortgages. But it's a little bit different to the way it works in other countries. And to, to understand this, you have to go a little bit into how real estate developers finance themselves in China. So for quite a long time, the Chinese government has been trying to prevent the real estate sector becoming too big a share of bank lending. That's the real estate developers in particular. So the real estate developers began turning, I think, especially after the the financial crisis, to international bond markets. So they issue a huge amount of of dollar debt. This has been a, a big funding market for them. Now, more recently than that, the past couple of years, the Chinese government has introduced a policy called the Three Red Lines Policy. So this has actually been quite a strict restriction on real estate developer funding.
0: If I can just stop you there, just for Irish listeners, just that idea of real estate developers issuing bonds, right? For the Irish case, just so you know, that is Irish banks issuing short-term instruments to get more cash in the door to lend to Irish developers. Just so you know the similarities. So in Ireland, the developers weren't going directly to the bond market. The banks were going to the bond market on behalf of the developers. Okay, so let's go. It's the same sort of thing. They
2: keep going. So basically, the the bottom line is there is a third method of funding which Chinese real estate developers, other than banks and bond markets, have used very, very heavily. Indeed, it's been a growing source of their funding, even as the the companies themselves have boomed over the last sort of decade or so. And that is pre-sales of housing. Oh yeah, this is interesting. The developers will open a a local center, it'll be a a shop front, and they'll they'll have their little models of what a development's going to look like. And people will come in and they'll be given a price list and you want a two bedroom flat, three bedroom flat, whatever it is. It's going to be on this ring road in this city. Put your money down. The the deposits in China are very large. You're talking about often 30, 50% of the, the cost of the property. You get your mortgage out. You start paying your mortgage to the property company, and they put down a date sometime in the future 18 months, two years, two and a half years, whatever it is that says, Come and get your house now. There's probably a minor discount in it for for you having agreed to the pre sale. Now, in a lot of the rest of the world, that would go in some sort of escrow account. It would go into some sort of form of legal protection so that the developer can't run away with the money. Now, in most of China, these accounts simply don't exist these have been used. So a real estate developer will get the pre-sales from a development that they've just advertised, and they will use that money to pay for the development that they promised to the guy 18 months ago, two years ago, three years ago, right? So this is where you get oh, into the sort of... Yeah, you get into the Ponzi financing, essentially, which is, which is where this is. It requires the growth. If you don't have the next layer of, of pre-sales, then you, you simply can't build what you've already promised to build. Um, this is the difficulty. So as these developers have hit the real financial hard straits in the last six, 12 months, these properties aren't being built anymore. You have people paying mortgages on properties that are not only being delayed, but there is no longer any evidence they will ever get. The developers are in such dire straits that a lot of the the developments have just ceased, which is why people have stopped paying their mortgages.
0: Now again, I'm, the reason I'm, I'm I'm knitting back and forth again it's it's for it's mainly for Irish, European, British, American audiences because we've seen this before. Except in the European case, in the British case, in the Irish case, in the American case, you put down your deposit. Your deposit is usually reasonably modest, right? It's reasonably modest in terms of the price of the house, but believe me, if you're a young Irish buyer, it's a huge chunk of any potential income you ever had. Interestingly, developers here use exactly the same game, except what they do is they put it in an escrow account, but they use that escrow account for collateral to banks who genuflect the escrow account and extend credit. So it's, again, what we're talking about, I want to to Americanize or in some way put it into the European, American, British world. This shit happens here too, okay? Except it's a little bit more sophisticated, less blatant. So what we're saying is that what we have on the demand and supply side of finance we have the demand eating the supply, the supply eating the demand. And once you start getting falls off in sales, then the entire supply chain of credit, it's the sort of contagion. We're looking at a contagion at the center of the Chinese property market.
2: Yeah, I think that's right. Now, uh, for me, the question then is, is where are the consequences? Why, how, does this, how does this end, basically? Um, yeah. And that's where I, I think it gets particularly interesting. Uh, my, my colleagues, Don Wineland and Simon Cox, who write about the Chinese economy and Chinese business and finance, they've written about this extensively and I talked to them. They're both of the same mind and, and so are actually most of the people that I speak to. What's, what's really interesting here is if you compare this to what happened in 2015-16, which is where some people will remember you had a little bit of a sort of pre-runner of this. You had a wobble in the housing market and that led to a wobble in the value of the Chinese yuan. You had a little uh, sort of dip there. You had people wondering whether this was going to start a a chain of devaluation, whether it was going to cause capital outflows. Now, that avenue seems to be basically closed this time. The risk of this causing massive capital outflows seems lower in the sense that the capital controls seem to work pretty well, as they have for several years. The banks actually look relatively stable. And that might sound unusual, but remember that these are are state-run banks and as long as there are no capital outflows, to a large extent, that the Chinese government can can keep these things under control. We've seen over the past sort of six or seven years a pretty high level of ability from the Chinese government in in sort of putting out financial fires as and when they erupt. So the question then becomes: If you can put these fires out, where do the consequences end up spilling over? They have to end up somewhere. You can't keep this sort of system propped up without consequences. My view, personally. Is that these end up displaying themselves in long term Chinese productivity? That you have these colossal overinvestments in an asset that is essentially deeply unproductive. You know, if you look at the rental sure. yields on, on Chinese residential property, this stuff looks like pre financial crisis Ireland on steroids, right? A lot of these places just don't have rental markets. There are no income returns to earning these properties, they just sit vacant with people just pre- expecting speculative gains so this is like you know you can tell the level of speculative activity just from how little income the owners are able to make from these properties
0: so that's the reasonably benign outlook is that you've a largely closed economy you've a largely sealed off current account you have a pool of savings that the government can basically deposit from one area to the other, right? Unlike a European country, Ireland, Britain, or the United States during the 2008 crisis where money flows out. Okay. So the benign thing is that the Chinese figure this out. What is the less benign risk case?
2: I mean, so I'll say two things. One is anyone who pretends they have an accurate, decent, complete map of the Chinese financial (laughs) system is, is not telling you the truth. That I suspect there is no Regulator or politician or analyst who has a full view of everything going on here. The small bank crises that you've seen in the past few years often emerge fairly quickly. And people don't have full visibility on this stuff. The other thing is that this is a confidence-based system the reason that people are willing to pay for, for flats, for houses that are worth oftentimes 30, 35 times the income level of the city that they live in is because they have the confidence that the prices continue to go up. When you remove that yep. confidence, as we know from many other examples, that's when things can start to go south. The final thing I'd say on the, the sort of productivity side is that might actually not be the benign way of these things playing out. That could trap to my view, Chinese economic growth for a very long time. It's a very, very big economy, but yeah, we've got to remember that in terms of the the personal income levels, the per capita size of the economy, it is really not a particularly prosperous economy yet. If you have this sort of persistent productivity shortfall, this constant misallocation of capital into really, really wasteful areas like real estate where you're, you're not making any return from it, you're going to see China sort of enter this middle income trap territory a lot earlier than it might have otherwise done.
0: Just a quick question, Mike: what size of GDP is real estate in China?
2: So the residential investment, so the annual amount going in is about 10% of GDP. So to put that in a bit of context, it was about 1.7 trillion US dollars worth last year. That's relative to 1.1 trillion in the US in the same year which is 4% of US GDP. Yeah,
0: the US is about twice as big.
2: Yeah, it's, it's, it's more than twice the size. And you've got to remember that last year was a, was a crazy year in the US housing market as well. So essentially, China is having a sort of investment level that's two and a half times, say, the US level in a frenetic year every year for, for a decade or more.
0: And the interesting thing is what you're saying is that there's a productivity drag. There's also a wealth drag, right? And this is the other side, is that people get pissed off. Right. So if Mao's promises will make you all equal, Den's promises will make you all rich and Xi's promises i will make you continue to be rich. I mean, we have the, the Taiwan saber rattling. We have the coronation of Xi coming up in a couple of months time. To what extent is Taiwan, all the saber rattling, again, a device to try and obscure the fact that what we have deep in the Chinese family around the kitchen table are conversations about housing.
2: I think that's a, it's a good point. And I think that one thing that's really important to remember about housing is, as you say, it is just, it is so close to the core of the sort of social compacts. You know, it's, it's so crucial that this is a reliable source of wealth, in large part because there is not another reliable source of wealth. We're not just talking about housing wealth as you might perceive it in Europe or in the US. China's got a very parsimonious welfare state you know, this is how you make sure that your children are looked after. This is how you make sure that your grandparents don't suffer in their old age. It is so, so important. And sort of threats to the value that you have essentially been promised are really, you know, they're important social and political issues as well. And then just finally, what do you
0: think it tells us about the great judgment of Xi and the fellas around him? Because one of the one of the great myths, you know, you know, I've been to China about five times. I haven't been for about five years, but constantly the ch- conversations we'd have was, was sort of like, well, there's this all knowing, all powerful, omnipotent, wise men at the top who figured out everything. You know, every time I talk to Chinese people, and these were very, very clever Chinese people. They were analysts, they were economists. They're, that clearly doesn't make them clever, obviously, but they were, you know, they had <laughs> you know, they, had, you know, they had a good handle. And their default position was kind of the Politburo knows what it's doing. Yeah. What does it say about? Their judgment, if they're presiding over a property collapse, a banking crisis, and the need to bail out a massive part
2: of the Chinese economy, I mean, I think I think it speaks very much to the core of the lie. It, it, to my view, it's a lie that you you often hear, which is that if you have a one-party state or an autocratic government, that. Oh, they're able to think in decades. You know they don't make the same sort of long term strategic mistakes that the democratic regimes do because you know they're 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 able to to look ahead and and you know they see the whole chessboard and all of that nonsense. This is something that no shortage of people in the Chinese government frankly saw coming down the road years ago. They've just not worked out a way to stop the train without it coming off the tracks, basically. There's too much wealth tied up with it. There's too many promises tied up with it. And now it's coming off the tracks. And I I think that the the Chinese government seems to presume that that there's a sort of plan here that they know what they're doing. But really, the absolute levels of money and and perceived wealth that are threatened here, I would say, you know, it's it's a huge, huge issue.
0: Mike, we leave it there. Now, by the way, Mike presents the Money Talks podcast of The Economist really, really well worth having a listen to. It's, uh, it's it, the last one. I think the last one, but one was on on this issue of China. But it's a fantastic uh, podcast. And again, with the Economist, they've got, unlike John and I, they've slightly more resources. I suspect it's it's slightly more resources. Yeah. <laughs> well, listen, Mike, that was great. Uh, and I hope that Sheffield United, to your beloved team, I, I think the story you told off air of your father allowing you a gob in the general direction of Sheffield Wednesday <laughs> is
2: pretty impressive. <laughs> I can't. I can't now send my dad the link to this podcast. He will get. He will get very annoyed that I've shared this story. Uh, but no, yeah.
0: no, 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 no. Tell him. Tell him that it, it shows depth, profundity, <laughs> loyalty, dislike, <laughs> hatred. All the great things that go into a proper football fan.
2: Yeah, this I is Mike, great. Great to talk to you. Take care. Thanks, Mike. Cheers, David. Thanks.
1: you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb dot com slash host So there's a couple of things there that Mike was talking about that I want to expand on a little bit. And one of them is the system in the way that the developers worked and the banks worked in China was, quite obviously, and you used the phrase yourself, was a Ponzi scheme.
0: Is a Ponzi
1: scheme. Is a Ponzi Ponzi Ponzi. scheme, which is is really bizarre. But also you asked the question there, which I want to pick up on. uh, You asked the question of Mike of what does it actually say about Xi Jinping and the Politburo and their judgment on running shit? You know, they should have seen this coming.
0: Well you remember and how you know, come they
1: lost control, them being control freaks and all the rest.
0: Do you know the you know the uh, the American film producer MGM Metro Goldwyn Mayer? Yes. I think one of the guys, I think it was Goldwyn, when he was asked the key to his success, he goes, Nobody knows nothing about nothing, right? <laughs> and what he, what he was basically saying, we're all kind of bullshitting. We're all going through the motions, we're all hoping to God it all works. The world is far too complicated to understand everything. And I think what it shows is that the Politburo in China are just human. They're just humans trying to make decisions under conditions of profound, profound uncertainty. And an interesting thing about economics, John, is that classical economics rests on the assumption, this is the interesting thing, that humans are all powerful, all-knowing, brilliant, living in a very uncomplicated world. That's mm. the basis of classical economics, where yeah. in actual fact, the opposite is the case. Humans are really kind of stupid and we don't know anything. And mm. we're living in an unbelievably complicated world, right? So in yeah. order to understand the world properly, you've got to reverse economics on its head and realize that, you know, way they say man is rational, utility maximizing, scientific, la la la, right? That's not how we are at all. and. We are unbelievably dumb, living in an unbelievably complicated world. Economics assumes that we are unbelievably clever, living in an incredibly unsophisticated world, an easy world. And I think, in fairness to the Politburo, and I'm sure they'd be very glad to hear this from the Dave McWilliams podcast, right? In fairness to the Politburo, they're just humans. I'm sure they're listening. I'm sure they're listening. They're listening away. But they're just humans making decisions, hoping for the best The law of unintended consequences, John, is probably one of the greatest observations about everything, that the world is so complicated. You do one thing, you hope for one thing, something else happens. What I think is more worrying for them, John, is that property collapses destroy economic confidence, and property collapses destroy faith in the financial system, and property collapses destroy trust in the political infrastructure. And that's why I believe the Chinese should be more worried because everything's based on faith. Because the world is so complicated, faith and trust are unbelievably important because we actually trust things that we don't know anything about. You take away the trust and you destroy everything. While I have you there, listen, I just want to say thank you so much to all our Patreons who really supported myself and John throughout the last nearly three years. Man. Three years, wow. I know, <laughs> it's a long time. I thought it only started last week. <laughs> it's such a good crack, though, <laughs> it isn't it? Is,
1: it is, it is, it is. It's like, it's like
0: I'm the dream gig. you know. <laughs> thank you very, very much. And if you do want to support us on Patreon, it's patreon.com forward slash David McWilliams. You get ad free. You get courses, you get chats, you can ask me questions, all sorts of stuff, and you really become part of the gang. So that's Patreon.com forward slash David McWilliams. And again, thank you very much. Small details are big surfaces.